Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, mitigating the risks ahead for big IT contracts. You run the risk of having stale technology, you run the risk of a marketplace changing underneath it, and you run the risk that agencies' needs are going to be very different two, three, four years after contract award. Things are looking up for long-term collaboration at the Pentagon. Where I've seen a tremendous amount of promise is that as they rolled this out, they did it in close collaboration with DOD's CIO. So what you're seeing is uh, really cool new ways of accessing these collaboration capabilities and done in conjunction with changes to DOD policy. And cloud smart means caution at the IRS. Not everything that gets moved to the cloud immediately becomes a, a, you know, a better than it was possibly or probably on-prem. So we want to be careful about what we move. It's Thursday, March 17th, 2022. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. 88% of the money the State Department got for COVID relief went to information technology, according to the Government Accountability Office. State spent most of the money on infrastructure and licenses that allowed employees to access state's global open net system. The state spend on IT from COVID relief funding was almost $56 million. Fleet Cyber Command will get a new deputy commander soon. Rear Admiral Michael Bernacci will take over as deputy commander of 10th Fleet. He's director for plans and policy at U.S. Space Command now. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Military and civilian CIOs will lay out their strategies for the cloud at the Public Sector Innovation Summit. It's coming April 14th at the Ritz-Carlton Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. An $11 billion cloud contract at DISA is on hold now. General Dynamics Information Technologies protesting the Defense Enclave Services contract DISA awarded to Lidos. Alan Schrotkin is partner at Nichols Lou. Alan, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. It's great to see you again. What do you see here in this protest that may relate to the broader theme of contracting across government? Welcome, Alan. Well, Francis, thank you for having me on the program. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Um, so you have two very sophisticated contractors here competing head to head for a single award, eleven and a half billion dollar award by DISA. Uh, so it's uh, clearly uh, market affecting. Uh, this will be for the entire fourth estate of the Department of Defense, uh, and it's going to preclude future competition for years. We've seen these single award contract uh, awards before. Uh, Jedi comes to mind. This is nothing like that, as at least I can tell from uh, what I understand so far. Uh, the good news is that the DISA and the Department of Defense have gone on through extensive debriefings uh, with the awardees. That's good. That's the whole purpose behind the debriefing is to inform them. On the other hand, uh, as is common in the marketplace, the debriefings still lead to a protest by the disappointed bidder. And that's what GDIT has. I don't have any access to the protest filings or anything, so I don't know all the content. Uh, but I'm not surprised that they're challenging the, the evaluation, how this uh, evaluated their proposal and, and made the award decision to Lidos. What jumped out at me about this, Alan, is we have talked in this community for the 15 or so years that I've been in it at least, and I know it wasn't new when I started, about the number of protests and whether the number of protests broadly goes up or down. 
And I don't think there's been as much focus over time on protests like this one. Like, this is a big deal. The protests on Jedi you referenced a moment ago and all of those. And I wonder what the process is or if there is a if it's possible to create one that might make these at least more resistant to protest or whether it behooves the agencies to build the protest time into the procurement cycle just expecting that on a deal this big it's bound to happen well you've raised uh, about 20 important points <laughs> <laughs> take, there, take any one of them that you choose counselor I, I appreciate that. Uh, first of all, it's not at all surprising that an award of this magnitude uh, or that is so market affecting that is it's going to be the only fourth estate uh, IT contractor for the next dozen years is getting a lot of attention. Uh, it's uh, not surprising that uh, that protest comes about from two sophisticated contractors and it'll go through uh, extensive review by GAO and a decision in June and maybe a follow-on protest uh, at the Court of Federal Claims. Uh, I think what this says is that agencies should not be at all surprised that they're going to be under intense scrutiny. Uh, and I would hope that both the contracting side as well as the lawyers supporting them uh, have done their due diligence to make sure that uh, they have all the answers that, that they need and that they're going to have to respond to uh, both the, to the protester in the debriefings as well as the GAO in their review. Uh, as to the number of protests, uh, they're fairly stable, but uh, I think it's true, although uh, I haven't done the research lately, that all large awards get protested. I mean, if the company is going to spend a million dollars, and I have no idea what they spent here, uh, but if they're going to spend a million dollars, what's another couple hundred thousand uh, to prove themselves right or wrong? and no company ever loses a contract, it's always taken away from them. That's the perspective of the, uh, from, from that side. The debriefing is supposed to provide clarity around that. And if it did, then uh, maybe this will dissolve itself before decisions. Uh, if it didn't, then uh, shame on DISA and the department for not giving a full debriefing so that the agent, so that the, uh, uh, so the GT can make an informed decision about a protest. You sent me a note that uh, you wrote the GDIT protest may be uh, may have a common thread with something that doesn't appear to be related on the surface, and that is the delay in the Polaris vehicle at GSA. What's the common thread that you see between that you see between those two things? Because you're right, I wouldn't have connected those two. Well, it, uh, it may be a thin uh, thread, nevertheless, but uh, both of these relate to how the U.S. government is choosing to go to market. Huge contracts, in the case of Polaris, large IDIQ contracts follow on to an important uh, GSA Alliant II small business award. Uh, GSA's uh, track record, not, a, not up at the top in some of these large IDIQs, uh, but they're not alone. Uh, we've talked past about CIO SP4 from NIH and the challenge that that uh, has gone through. So I, I think one part of the history is these large IDIQ contracts, because they have so many offerors, because they are so market affecting in terms of time and scope, they necessarily draw challenges. And if the agencies are not well prepared for them, then they're going to run into problems with the procurement. They're going to run into delays in getting that award. 
And uh, I hope that's not the case with Polaris uh, as it was with uh, Alliant, but uh, I think the experience is otherwise. You make a good point there too, because it's, it's not just GSA. And you said if the agencies aren't prepared for that, and I take that to mean you're referring to all of the agencies that will use the vehicle in addition to the agency putting the vehicle out itself, whether it's GSA or NITAC or any of the other, you know, NASA Soup or whatever. Um, and that's certainly something that we saw with the EIS contract. The agencies didn't appear, despite I think GSA's pretty aggressive efforts to be ready or willing maybe to transition to that contract. And they're the ultimate beneficiary. I mean, these contracts are put in place for the users, for the buying activities, not for GSA, although GSA may be a purchaser on its own or NITAC may be a purchaser from CIOS before. Uh, this is really to the benefit of the rest of the government. And so if they're, uh, yes, there are councils, yes, there are reviews, but if they're not well prepared for that, uh, time will get past them very quickly. And the value of these, uh, from a strategic sourcing, from an enterprise-wide application, uh, even from an IT uh, products and services, uh, can diminish rapidly. So, pick your vehicle, or pick any, you know, none in particular. But what does an agency do to prepare well, so that when somebody lets one of these contracts, the agency's able to maximize it? Like, what should they be doing that they didn't do in the case of EIS? You don't have to pick on EIS in particular. Well, there's the uh, the pre-work, uh, making sure, in the case of EIS, I happen to be familiar with that. I did a lot of uh, work on, on early stages of that in my prior life, last century. Uh, but the, uh, the activity here is not only the preparatory work around the business side, but the preparatory work around the follow-on awards. Uh, that is the actual... It, it, uh, uh, task orders and work to come. Uh, I don't think as much work was done, or at least the agencies have transitioned and said, well, when we when this is awarded, because it might take a year or two or three, our requirements might change, we'll work, we'll wait. I, I also think that the, uh, the underlying contract vehicles uh, often lack the flexibility to meet the wide span of needs that agencies have. And so I, I don't think there's a secret sauce there that, you know, large gaps that the agencies are missing. Uh, but every time you put one of these large IDIQ contracts, particularly in IT uh, in place, you run the risk of having stale technology. You run the risk of a marketplace changing underneath it. And you run the risk that agencies needs are going to be very different two, three, four years after contract award. Alan Fodkin, it's great to talk to you again, my friend. Thanks for coming on today. Always my pleasure, Francis. Great to see you. You can read more about the contracts Alan talked about and the challenges they're having in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast on tomorrow's show, Supply Chain Solutions for Government and Industry. General Gus Perna, U.S. Army retired, former chief operating officer of Operation Warp Speed is here. That show debuts Friday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. 
The Defense Department's Zero Trust Journey is underway. The Chief Information Officer at the Pentagon, John Sherman, told me Tuesday on the Daily Scoop podcast, the department's system is not the only priority. Jack Wilmer is CEO of CoreForce. He's former Chief Information Security Officer at the Defense Department. Jack, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What's your sense of where the Zero Trust Journey is at the Pentagon, uh, especially based on the fact that you st- this was underway when you were there uh, not too long ago. Welcome. Thanks, Francis. Uh, really appreciate you having me on. It's great to be on this program as always. Um, you know, it was really cool. I was listening to the interview you had with John Sherman uh, a couple days ago, and it was just uh, great to frankly hear about some of the progress and the focus on zero trust. So uh, when I was there a couple of years ago, we were really beginning to have the conversation. I think a lot of us saw the potential of zero trust. Um, and you know the emphasis of it's all about the data. How do we better protect data and, and grant access? Um, where I've seen is a really, really encouraging uh, evolution of you know kind of talking about it. Uh, again, when I was there, we had small pilots, right? We were testing this out on networks of tens of people, uh, moving up to hundreds and eventually thousands. Uh, if I look at what some of the initiatives that are underway now. Um, there's one, uh, as an example, Navy's Operation Flank Speed, where they're actually deploying it on, a, you know, across about a half a million users, which is massive. Uh, and the thing that's most exciting to me about that is the intent of that was not to try and figure out how do we better protect data. It was about, you know, the operational imperative. How do we make sure that we can grant access in a faster and more uh, productive way to collaboration capabilities, things along those lines? And so uh, the really encouraging things that I'm seeing is the department's moving away from just kind of prototypes and pilots to test out zero trust concepts and using some of those zero trust building blocks as ways to solve real operational problems. What do you think's driven that scale? And is that the same stuff, the same strategy that will drive the next scale to whatever the next level is? Yeah, I think um, so that particular initiative really spawned out of, uh, you know, frankly, the pandemic. So, you, you know, you look back at uh, obviously tremendous negatives associated with the pandemic, but some really cool innovations that came out. So the rapid deployment of CVR uh, of getting uh, commercial collaboration capabilities in the hands of our civilians and warfighters faster. Uh, and one of the things that we realized is we had to really look at what are ways that we can access these collaboration capabilities if we're not all you know, VPNing back in through uh, government networks as the workforce is more distributed. And so um, some of those pilots that we initiated back then to try and solve these operational pilots uh, or operational problems, this was one of the Navy's initiatives where uh, they looked at uh, how to do that. And, and again, um, where I've seen a tremendous amount of promise is that as they rolled this out, they did it in close collaboration with DOD CIO. So what you're seeing is uh, really cool new ways of accessing these collaboration capabilities and done in conjunction with changes to DOD policy so that as uh, they get the expected results of, hey, we can do this in a more secure and more streamlined and agile manner, uh, we can actually go back and change DOD policy. And so I love to see that uh, collaboration hand in hand between the military services and uh, DOD CIO. What do you think is the next thing? I mean, we've talked about zero trust for a while now. And, you know, as, as you're talking about the way that you were looking at it and thinking about it two years ago when you were in the building, I wonder what we should be thinking about as a community for the that's two years out or that's five years out. Is it even possible to think about that yet? 
You know, I think that what I've seen, and you look back in the early 2000s and the big buzzwords were net centricity, and then it moved into cloud, and now it's zero trust. And, you know, I think the technologies evolve and are going to continue to evolve, but a lot of how uh, they manifest themselves in the department are really about the same goals. You know, how do I make data visible, accessible, understandable, trusted? You know, those are uh, tenants that I saw, again, uh, the deputy secretary was uh, looking at putting in place now in 2022. Those were some of the same fundamental underlying tenants that we put in place right after 9-11 of how do we make sure we can uh, securely share information. And so I think that that is uh, fundamentally what all of this is about. And I think as technology evolves, there's more options available to us uh, to figure out how we implement those fundamental tenants. But uh, it's really important and I think uh, illustrative to see how fundamentally what we're trying to do hasn't changed, uh, just the technologies available to us do change. Uh, and so I think realistically over the next two years, uh, we will, regardless of you know the next technology that comes out, we're still going to be driving some of that change and trying to figure out how these you know fundamental concepts, understanding who's on our network, what devices are on our network, those types of things, putting those foundational pieces in place uh, that right now enable zero trust. Uh, they are also going to be instrumental in whatever the next technology is uh, to make sure that we've got that good, solid understanding for protecting data. Another concept that John confirmed to me, and it's it's a continuation of the way that the department has thought about this for a number of years now, but the system, as I mentioned in the beginning, the system that he's thinking about is not just what the Defense Department owns or buys. It's the integration and the interlocking with the defense industrial base too, isn't it, Jack? Uh, that's absolutely correct. And that the good news is that's long been a focus of the department is how do we uh, ensure and drive security advances into the defense industrial base? I mean, he mentioned there's hundreds of thousands of companies that make up the defense industrial base. And a lot of those companies are more than just defense contractors. They just happen to provide a component to uh, a weapon system or something else. And so the point is the reach of the defense industrial base is way more broad than just the Department of Defense. It's uh, those companies provide incredibly important services throughout our critical infrastructure of our nation. And so uh, there is a huge imperative on uh, making sure that we give them the tools that they need uh, to be able to protect the government-sensitive information uh, as well as to protect their businesses uh, and viability. So the elephant in the room is the cybersecurity maturity model certification. What's your sense of where a program like that should go to really achieve the goal, to get the outcome that the department wants, which is a sense of at least awareness of what the security of the individual companies are and what the DIB broadly is, what its security posture is. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, to your point, it's really important to focus on where are we trying to go and, and that awareness piece. Uh, so it's been required for a long time in contracts that if you have controlled unclassified information, you have to meet government security standards. And so, uh, and, and I've been pretty vocal on this since we started with CMMC, uh, companies have the ability to say, well, I meet most of them, but I've got a POAM. And at some point when uh, it's convenient, I will uh, implement the rest of the controls. Uh, and a lot of times those controls are really, really important to be able to understand if there's something that's going on in your network. 
network. And so uh, I love the idea uh, and the thesis behind the model where it gets uh, some kind of independent validation that companies are actually doing what they say they're going to do, and they're making earnest efforts to close down the gaps that they have. And again, you know, the NIST 171 standards, they, in my opinion, they are basic, uh, but that doesn't mean they're easy to actually implement. There's a lot of work that's required to get there. Uh, and I do understand that it's going to take companies a while to become fully compliant. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, our taxpayer dollars have funded all of this controlled unclassified information that companies have, uh, and, and companies absolutely have a responsibility to protect that. And so I think the more accountability we can drive into that space, the better off we'll be. Yeah, I appreciate the term that you just used, making earnest efforts, but it strikes me that it is a member of the defense industrial base's system secure, given what we're up against against nation state actors. That's like being kind of pregnant. You either have to be or not be, right? That's exactly right. Um, You know, I think at the end of the day, if you are targeted by uh, a nation state, it's going to be really difficult for any individual company to defend themselves, regardless of the cybersecurity standards that you have. But once you've uh, implemented the NIST 171 controls, uh, you you stand a way better likelihood of understanding, you know, if you're under attack, uh, being able to detect those sorts of things. So it at least uh, doesn't provide unfettered access. Jack Wilmer, great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Francis, thank you very much. Great to be on the program. You can read more about the Pentagon's Zero Trust journey in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Internal Revenue Service will get a budget increase of almost 6% in the omnibus budget Congress just passed and President Biden signed. Some of that increase will go to modernizing the agency's technology. Kashit Pandya is Deputy Chief Information Officer for IT Operations at the IRS. He tells my colleague Wyatt Cash about the implications of the cloud computing deployments the agency's already made. Our cloud journey over the last several years has allowed us to really focus on providing the best service for our taxpayers and our customers. We've done so by slowly migrating some of our key applications. Our website, irs.gov, is fully hosted in the cloud. Over the course of the last several years, we've moved many of our external-facing applications to the cloud, always taking into consideration that we want our presence on the cloud to be safe and secure, knowing we are responsible for protecting taxpayer data. We are using irs.gov, one of the most visited sites from a, from a government perspective and government agency perspective, that also allows individuals and businesses to come in and, ex- and, and get the services that they need and do so safely and securely. So that's one example. Our focus has always remained on where can we identify the most efficiencies, cost savings where possible, and of course, doing it all while keeping ourselves and our data safe and secure. Well, can you talk a little bit about an example of maybe one or two of the primary technology challenges that your agency faced in delivering service to the public? And, and how did the cloud help you overcome them? Absolutely. So uh, from a challenge perspective, while we have a budget, most of our budget is allocated to our operations and maintenance. In fact, we're right around that 75 to 80% of our budget going to operations and maintenance. The cloud has helped us to really focus on leveraging what it provides best, the elasticity, the immediate access to resources, and therefore doing so 
has allowed us to cut out some of our processes, but also some of that lead time. And then ultimately the ability to reuse or, or turn the resources when not necessary for not used, that has really made a huge difference in how we operate and how much we're able to save through it, whether it's from a money perspective or a time perspective or just overall management perspective. And next, maybe you could um, describe a couple of key outcomes that the cloud allowed your agency to achieve compared to maybe where you were just a couple of years ago. Absolutely. So the cloud really has been a game changer for us as we started to adopt um, more and more of our applications and services by leveraging the cloud. Resiliency is the first one that comes into mind. With our environment, we need to ensure that the services we provide are available and accessible for all the taxpayers at all times. Cloud has played a huge role in providing that resiliency. In addition to that, our ability to deploy applications, infrastructure, and services faster. While internally, we do a great job of deploying our applications and infrastructure, that immediate access to the underlying infrastructure that we need takes a little bit longer within our environments on-prem than it does in the cloud. So having access to infrastructure on demand really has been a game changer. And the third one I can talk about, uh, the one that we have seen the benefits from is the pay as use service. Now we buy infrastructure, we buy applications, we buy compute as we need and had projected for an application or a service. However, we wanna be careful not to under purchase and therefore we end up buying what we buy based on our projections. How, if there is any excess, we are responsible for determining how best to take you know, care of that excess, but we've paid for it already. That pay as you use model that the cloud provides allows us to buy exactly what we need and then scale up as we need to scale up or scale down when we don't need that same level of compute and resources. And lastly, what one or two key lessons or maybe even surprises did you experience moving to the cloud? And what, what do you plan to adopt uh, in the way of additional cloud services next? Absolutely. Our internal target and goal and mantra is cloud first. But at the same time, we are being intelligent and we're being smart. So we say cloud first, cloud smart. Not everything that gets moved to the cloud immediately becomes a, you know, a better than it was possibly or probably on-prem. So we want to be careful about what we move. And before we move it, we do the analysis uh, to make sure that it is going to get us the benefits that we truly need and want and have identified. That was one lesson that we, I would say, I would encourage anybody and everybody to consider prior to moving to the cloud. There is this misguided notion that everything in the cloud automatically is better and cheaper and faster. That's not always the case. Look at your applications, look at your ecosystem, identify where the value can be derived by migrating to the cloud and then move, the, move to the cloud. The second one is in ensuring that our workforce is prepared for that migration not just actual act of migrating an application, but also to be able to manage and handle the infrastructure, the applications once it has been migrated. Um, we are ensuring that our workforce is in lockstep with our future state. So we are preparing them through training, through identifying the right skill sets that we need and will need in the future and, and finding the talent 
that can make sure that it, one, we can migrate safely and securely, and then we can operate safely and securely. Securely. So workforce and I would say being cloud smart are, are some of the, the takeaways, lessons that we really learned from our journey as we continue to move. As far as our future state, we're continuing to look at what are those technologies that we can benefit from and take advantage of. Um, we are starting to look at moving up the ladder of the as a service model. So it's not necessarily an infrastructure as a service. We're starting to look at platform as a service, software as a service, really getting the benefits of that as a service model while removing that administrative overhead that comes with managing infrastructure. We're looking at containers, we're looking at APIs, you know, all the technology that we hear a lot about that we can truly take advantage of as we continue migrating on our journey to the cloud. Kashit Pandya of the IRS with my colleague Wyatt Cash. You can find a link to watch the video of that conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Tomorrow, logistics and supply chain with General Gus Perna. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.